now is not the time to actually just have conflicts about our opinions but to actually look at hard objective data because mm-hmm. we don't know what we don't know and uh, maybe there are multiple layers to the science of nutrition as we know more about microbiome and our environment we might just discover that it's very hard to figure out one one size fits all because a large part of the world might just be okay with a different kind of diet than we have we have never been this global we have never right. been eating a just before the last 100 years we have never eaten a truly global diet and today we almost eat everything that's all around so uh, we might just discover that we might need a different microbiome environment to to compensate for that right and and your microbiome is going to be different depending on what part of the world you grew up in like even if yeah. you were so you have the cultural you have the genetic right so you have what is your genetic disposition from your parentage but then if you, even if you had parents let's say from you know let's say you had both your parents were say from africa but you grew up in you know massachusetts in the us right your microbiome is going to be different than if you had grown up in africa with those parents but you still have some of that genetic memory and some of the inheritance of your parents and there's even things that you know they talked about one of the microbiome bits that i thought was fascinating that i heard is that the baby's microbiome actually gets converted from the mother to the infant a huge part of the conversion happens through natural birth so when a woman has a cesarean the microbiome does not get set and then and then the secondary level is also through uh being breastfed so not to say that you know but cesareans have gone up exponentially around the world is a treatment and so there's a lot again you know these are still to be further researched but these are things that you know probably have pretty profound impact that we just hadn't thought of before so that when you have a cesarean, you actually are depriving that infant. And again, sometimes you have to do it. So don't get me wrong. If you had it, you know, your mother did it, or you have to do it as a woman that we totally understand that's sometimes the case. But I think what we'll have in the future is we'll be like, oh, this baby had a cesarean. We're going to do a microbiome transplant from the mother to the infant in the hospital before we send them home, right? Because they had a cesarean, because there's something that happens in that. And then again, something else that if the infant can't be breastfed for whatever reason, we're going to have to do some microbiome support at that young age to help set that person's microbiome properly. So these are things that are, you know, there is research and literature behind them. There are people conducting the studies and uh, it's very promising. And it's probably, like I said, it's going to be part of the future of medicine once we can dial it all in. And that's the most optimistic view of the future of medicine. Like I think in all fairness, what the modern medicine or let's say uh, the evolution layer of medicine has done is that it has made it more inclusive for people to have a better quality of life. So maybe 100 years back, your survival would depend on your environment, your genetics, mm-hmm. uh, the food you have in and around you or the infectious diseases that you're exposed to. But now most people have a good shot at living a, or surviving through uh, like most years of life. So it, it does actually solve a lot for the uh, the downward or the the sort of like the, the fallback scenario for humanity, which is essentially like how do most people survive? Even if, if you don't have the genes, even if you don't have the environment, uh, even if you don't have access to completely safe environment from an uh, infectious disease perspective, but even then, how do you survive? And uh, I think what biohacking and modified self is doing is that it is taking that this to another level like it is sort of like helping the system evolve faster uh, otherwise right. we'll just be optimizing for people not dying which is obviously a big problem to solve but then it does not optimize for how do people live a better quality of life yeah i i believe we're creating a new category because i think what we've had is we had like you said you know it's synthesizing from a number of spaces you mentioned even traditional 
you know, medicine, right? And some of these traditional, so we've, you know, modern medicine threw a lot of that in the garbage and, you know, they probably threw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of intelligence, right? In some of these traditional ideas. And then a lot of the biohacking community these days is throwing away a lot of modern medicine because they're like, oh, well, modern medicine has become whatever, you know, corrupted or it's just focused on acute care and it doesn't look at chronic disease and all. But again, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? So I think we need to have a synthesis where we bring all of this together. And I think it's a new category. We don't really have a name for it. I, I, I personally like to call it biohacking. I've started to even, if people don't like that term, I said, well, evidence-based wellness right, is another way to look at it. Because it's the idea that we're applying this rigorous science and medical understanding, because you don't want to throw that away. I mean, to me, the scientific method is still, you know, probably the best way humanity has ever come up with to actually really understand reality, right? So don't throw that away. So we need to use the scientific method, but we need to incorporate into the scientific method a bit of a more open-mindedness, right? And, And not be not everything needs, you know, it's nice to have double blind placebo controlled trials, but I'll give you another example. We talked about the, the, you know, like fasting. There was recently a study that came out that said they did a, a study on intermittent fasting. It was not a huge study. I, I can't remember the exact end number, but I think it was somewhere around 50 maybe. And at the end of the study, they couldn't find any proof that intermittent fasting had any positive effect on the individuals. So their conclusion was we couldn't find any proof, right? But if you look around in the biohacking community or in the metabolic health community, you know, and even just my own end of one, I mean, intermittent fasting has completely changed my life completely for the better. I mean, it's literally transformed everything for me. And there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that could probably attest to the same thing. So what do we do? Do we throw out all of that data and say, well, the study said intermittent fasting was inconclusive. You know, you can't do that. You have to look at something with a bit of a more open mind. You say, well, look, this is working for people. Maybe that study just, you know, what were the confounding factors in that study? Why didn't even the, even the researchers admit at the end of the study, they didn't say intermittent fasting was useless. They just said, well, it's inconclusive, this study. Because they realized they went into it like, you know, with an open mind, they just couldn't get the results in that study. So why did that happen? We don't know. But we got to kind of have a more open-minded conversation about this. And I think open-minded conversations have become more difficult these days. But, you know, yeah. let's, uh, let's try. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a phenomenal example, right? Because probably read, the similar, read a similar study on intermittent fasting. And uh, I was on this conversation a few days back where... Uh, there was a debate between uh, calorie-restricted diets, glucose, insulin, fasting, and then intermittent fasting, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the debate was largely focused on, like, which one is the best and everything else is a scam. And uh, uh, and, and my view on that was, why, why can't we have an answer which is a combination of all three? Exactly. Yes, there is energy in, energy out concept that matters. But at the same time, insulin is known to be like elevated levels of insulin and glucose is known to be inflammatory. So why can't we study that in combination with calorie in, calorie out? And in combination with essentially the ability to look at like intermittent fasting as a behavior shaper, right? Mm-hmm. Why isn't behavior shaping an important aspect of our diet? Like most people, if mo- most people correct their behavior, their diet will always be fine. But it's very hard to correct your behavior, right? And probably that's behavioral science is probably the most toughest things to change like as you mentioned like it's it's easier to change somebody's religion than their diet 
Yeah, so, uh, which is astounding, but true. Yeah, astounding, but true. It's their belief system. So that is precisely the problem that my goal is not to defeat the other person's view. My goal is not to defeat calorie-restricted diets. My goal is to study that with an open mind and also combine with it with the powers of uh, uh, biomarker tracking. Because a lot of people can't do calorie-restricted diets as well. Like it's very hard for them to right. measure everything and ensure that they're eating by the, the sum of calories. And, and what, what's, is there an easier method for them that can shape their behavior? That's just been an area of mine personally. That's actually what I've been talking about lately more because I realized a lot of people in the biohacking community are talking about like this, this is the, the try intermittent fasting or try this or try. So everyone's giving you protocols or products, but no one's talking about the underlying condition of behavioral change, right? Like why yeah. is it so hard for most people? So you can give people a list, a to-do list of things to do for their health, but then they don't do it. Yeah. So what's the point, right? And that's that's actually been the area myself that I've been focusing most of my work on these days uh, in terms of like my speaking and uh, some of the education I've been doing. And the advocacy is more around acknowledging the difficulty of behavioral change and then how do we actually go about sort of reprogramming our behavior. It's not, it's, it is, it's the hardest thing to do, but this is the underlying foundation of all of this other work, right? So you gather the data and then you tell people, okay, you need to, this is what makes you the healthiest person if you change your diet to this. And then what happens, they don't do it. So who cares if yeah. you got the data, if you got the proof, if you got, if you got everything else, who cares? Because the person doesn't change their behavior, even though you know this is exactly what's going to make you a healthier person, right? And, you know, and again, as we know throughout history, you know, people who try a diet bounce back most of the time. So even if they do yeah. change their diet, it only lasts, they have like an elastic band. They stretch and they're like, oh yeah, I'll do it for a while. And then they go back to their baseline, whatever that was, no matter how unhealthy it was. So. This is the fundamental problem we have to deal with now. And that's even where biowearables need to get to in the next level, right? Because the current level is they're giving data, but then they're not changing behavior. They're just giving the information. So this is going to be the next evolution of the entire space, I believe. 